And if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word and for prayer. And I will read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Second Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 13. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him... He will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This is the word of the Lord. May you receive it with meekness for the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray right now that you would send your spirit upon us to quiet our hearts, that you would remove distractions, that you would open our minds so that we could understand the scriptures. And may you work in us what is pleasing in your sight, that you would be lifted up and magnified and glorified in all the earth. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Back in the middle of the 20th century, there was a theological gathering at Oxford, and several scholars gathered together for the purpose of discussing what was unique about Christianity, trying to discover what it was about Christianity that set it apart from all the other religions. And there were several scholars there, and they spent all day discussing this, trying to figure out what it was. And late in the day, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And he saw what was going on, and he asked somebody, he said, what's all the fuss about? What are they talking about? And so one of the men said to him, well, we've been talking all day long, trying to figure out what it is about Christianity that sets it apart. And C.S. Lewis said immediately, well, that's easy. It's the grace of God. It is the grace of God that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. That God has done everything necessary for our salvation. That there is nothing that man can do to earn their own redemption. This past week, I read a description of grace that I had not heard before, but I thought was a good one. And it went like this. It said, Grace is the gift of God that is not deserved, that cannot be earned, 
and that cannot be paid back. The gift of God that is not deserved, that cannot be earned, and that cannot be paid back. And as we think about the grace of God, we turn to our passage this evening because it begins with grace and it ends with grace. And grace filters through every verse in this passage. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul begins with a command to Timothy. And he says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But this command is in the passive form. And basically what that means is that the strength that Paul is commanding of Timothy and of us is not to come from within us. It doesn't come from our own strength. In fact, a better translation might be something like this. By means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, be strong. Or as the ESV states, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is grace and power that comes from Christ and enables us to be strong. But what is the grace of Christ Jesus that Paul is referring to here? What do we normally think of when we think of the grace of Christ Jesus? First thing that comes to our mind is probably the saving grace of Christ Jesus, that which brings us out of death into life. And certainly, Paul has this in mind. If you look back at chapter 1, the end of verse 8, he describes this for us, where he says, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It is by grace we've been saved, through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so no one can boast. So certainly the saving grace of Christ is part of it. But also, there's, it goes beyond that. It's not just by His grace that we enter into the family of God, but then we also have the enabling grace of God that, is, that allows us to remain in the family of God, that carries us through to the end. And Paul also speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 9, where he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And this is what Paul's getting at here in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The main reason he brings that to mind and gives Timothy that command is because of what he's going to say in verse 3. Because of the command that he turns to then, where he says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul gives Timothy this as a command. It's not if suffering will come, but when it comes. Timothy's suffering will come. And when it comes, endure it. Share in it. Don't flee from it. Don't run from it. Don't turn away as so many others have turned away. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Well, in order for us to be able to do that, we must be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And now Paul's going to explain this for us. He gives us three examples from everyday life to give us guidelines on how we can do this, how we can be strengthened by the grace of Christ to enable us to share in suffering. And the first thing that he says in verse 4 is that if we are going to be strengthened by his grace to share in suffering, we must have the single-minded focus and the wholehearted devotion of a soldier. We must have the single-minded focus and the wholehearted devotion of a soldier. Paul begins, verse 4, by saying, No one's serving as a soldier. And what he's getting at is a soldier who is on active duty. Somebody who is involved in the battle. 
somebody who's in the midst of the conflict. conflict. And if you think about that, a soldier who is at war, in battle, it makes a difference in how he behaves. You know, if his life is on the line and the lives of others depend upon him, he's not going to get involved in civilian affairs. Things that once were very important to him will no longer be so important when his life is at stake. Now he's dealing with matters of life and death. So it's not going to matter to him so much what clothes he's going to wear that day or what TV shows are going to be on that night or what he's going to do on the weekend or where he might spend his next vacation or how his retirement account is doing or who's going to win the Super Bowl. All those things lose their importance when he's in battle and his life is at stake. He doesn't get involved in those civilian affairs. They might not even be bad things or sinful things. They could even be good things, but they no longer matter when he's dealing with matters of life and death. It echoes what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Paul's telling Timothy, and he's telling us, not to become entangled, not to become enmeshed with the things of this world, things that might distract us from the main thing, from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the reason he gives the soldier, the reason the soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs is because he only wants to please his commanding officer. He only wants to please the one who chose him to be a soldier. And here we see the grace of Christ as well. Because the only reason that any of us are part of the family of God is because God has chosen us. He has enlisted us. He has brought us into his family. He has rescued us from darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. The God of this age had blinded our eyes so we could not see the light of the gospel. And then the God who said, let there be light, he caused his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. And so we were able to turn from darkness and enter into light. And once that happens, everything changes for us so that we also only want to please the one who enlisted us. We did not choose him, but he chose us and appointed us to go and bear fruit, fruit that would last. And Paul says in Corinthians that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so we must glorify God in our bodies. The soldier has just one purpose, to satisfy, to please his commanding officer, the one who enlisted him. And in the same way, the child of God has one purpose, to glorify and enjoy God forever. Do we have that desire? Do we have that single-minded focus, that wholehearted devotion? St. Augustine gets at the heart of it in something that he said. I encourage you to grab a pen or pencil and jot this down because you have to really think about this to get it. You might need to take it home with you tonight and reflect on it. But he said this. He said, He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. We ought to pray that we would understand that and that would grip our hearts. Perhaps we ought to pray also like Count Zinzendorf prayed when he said, I have but one passion. It is he, he alone. 
One passion, he, he alone. Or maybe we ought to pray like the psalmist prays when he said, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or like Paul in Philippians when he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul also said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we have that passion? Do we have a sense of that desire at all? Do we think in that way? And do we see that suffering can actually help hone that passion? It can sharpen that passion. It can actually be good for us. Or do we bow to the idol of comfort and ease and peace and superficial harmony and a world without conflict? See, that's what we want so often, isn't it? We don't want any discomfort in our lives or the lives of those we love. We don't want the trace of hardship. And when it comes, we want to get rid of it as soon as we can. We, it's like a TV sitcom. It comes and we want to be able to wrap it up in a nice, neat package within a half an hour and then go on our merry way. We don't want to put up with anything that hurts. And yet, oftentimes, suffering can be the very thing that points us to Christ or points others to Christ. And the Bible is filled with examples of how God has used difficulties to further his glorious purposes. Over and over again, you see it in Scripture. In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, you're all familiar with the story of Joseph. If anybody ever suffered unjustly, it was Joseph. Not only did his brothers sell him into slavery, but then when he got to Egypt and lived as a slave, he was falsely accused and thrown into prison for something that he did not do. And later, when he was reunited with his brothers, many years later, they were afraid that he might want to take revenge on them. But what did he say? He said, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph's suffering led to people being saved from death. And so Joseph was willing to share in it as he was strengthened by the grace of Christ and saw the purpose of God. But in that case, it was only physical lives that were saved. He was saved. There was a great famine. He was saving people from starving to death. But elsewhere in the Bible, it speaks of even a greater salvation. If you remember Jesus in John chapter 11 with his good friend Lazarus. His good friend Lazarus is sick and he's about to die. And Mary and Martha don't want Lazarus to die, their brother. So they send word to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, come. If you come, you can heal him so that he doesn't die. But Jesus doesn't go right away. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he want to go to alleviate suffering? He could have done that. And he's talking to his disciples about this, trying to explain to them why he couldn't go. And they, they aren't quite getting it. And so finally Jesus just tells them, 
Lazarus is dead. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. The reason Jesus didn't go was because he wanted his disciples to believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. So in that case, even the suffering of a friend, a loved one, and his death was not the greatest purpose. There was something greater than that, that his disciples would put their faith in him. Well, in that case, Jesus did go and raise Lazarus. And, and just before he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he prays in the midst of all the people who have gathered around. And he says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. Well, I know that you always hear me, but I say it for the benefit of those here. Why? So that they may believe that you sent me. Again, the purpose in the suffering is so that others can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing they may have life in his name. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that's, that suffering is not the worst thing in the world. In fact, suffering can also lead to something greater. One more example, Jesus and Peter, one of my favorites. So Jesus, in Matthew 16, comes to Peter and he asks the disciples, Who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? Peter confesses for the first time, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And right after that, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must suffer and die. And you might want to look at this later on. It's Matthew 16, 21, 22, 23, in that area. And after Jesus explains this to Peter, Peter says this. It actually says this in the Bible. Peter says to Jesus, he takes Jesus aside. Just get this picture in your mind. Peter takes Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, aside, and he begins to rebuke him, to rebuke Christ. He says, because what is Peter thinking? He's thinking, I don't want my my God and King. I don't want Jesus, my teacher, the one I'm following. I don't want him to suffer. I don't want him to experience pain or death. And he says, never, Lord. May this never happen to you. Now, what if Peter had gotten his wish? If that hadn't happened, we would be without hope today. We would still be dead in our sins. Peter says, never, Lord, I don't want this to happen to you. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, when we seek to avoid suffering, and I'm not saying we have to seek it out, because in this world, as you strive to follow Christ, it will come. But if we seek to avoid it, if we see it only as evil, as something to be avoided, as something that is no good, then we will miss out on the greater purposes of God. We cannot see everything that he sees. We cannot understand everything that he understands. And so instead, we need to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. For we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Be strengthened by the grace of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering. Begin by having this single-minded focus, this wholehearted devotion of a soldier. Well, the next illustration that Paul uses begins in verse 5. And he says, we also need to have the discipline of an athlete. The discipline of an athlete. 
He says an athlete cannot win the prize if he doesn't compete according to the rules. And even if you're not a sports fan at all, you have probably heard that the state of sports today in our culture, in our country, in our world is in disarray because there's all this controversy over athletes who have not competed according to the rules. And they've engaged in the use of illegal steroids or human growth hormones. And left and right, athletes are having to return their prizes and their medals and their gold jerseys because they haven't complete, competed according to the rules. Marion Jones was an Olympic athlete. The 2000 Olympic Games, she won five medals, three gold medals and two bronze medals from the United States. And she had to return those five medals because she took steroids. Not only that, but she lied about it, and now she's going to have to go to jail. She did not compete according to the rules. So Paul says you're not crowned unless you compete by the rules. Paul doesn't list the rules here for us that he's referring to, but we know that the Word of God is our only rule of faith and practice, and we know that he's implying what he's teaching here, that one of those rules includes... Enduring suffering, sharing in suffering as you strive to follow Jesus Christ. He makes that perfectly clear in the next chapter, verse 12, where he says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It will come, and you must have the discipline of the athlete to be able to compete according to the rules. But once again, we see the grace of Christ in this passage as well, because the athlete. What does he do? He competes according to the rules in order to get a prize that will not last. A perishable crown. But we, the children of God, we compete so that we can receive a crown that will last forever. An imperishable crown. In James it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And in Revelation we're told, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is what we have to look forward to. As we have the discipline of an athlete and compete according to the rules, strengthened by the grace of Christ, sharing and suffering, the crown of life awaits us in the presence of our Savior. The third illustration Paul uses begins in verse 6. And now he says we need to have the work ethic of a farmer. The work ethic of a farmer. And the opening words are, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. That word hard-working, it means to work hard or to toil, to strive or struggle, to labor intensely, even to the point of exhaustion if necessary. And here in Lancaster County, many of you are probably familiar with the work of a farmer. You recognize that there's probably no one that works harder than a farmer. They rise early. They go to bed late. All day long engaged in this hard, physical, manual labor. Whether it's hot out or cold out, it doesn't matter. And when you engage in that kind of work, it pays off. Not only in the crops that can be harvested, but also in your own bodies. It produces strong men. I've seen this happen in some of the guys in youth group. The Rudy boys, if you know them, Stephen and Joseph. I knew them back when they were in junior high and And when they were in junior high, I could take them. We wrestle, I'd come out on top. Today, not so much. They've worked on the farm, and it shows. And so now I wouldn't even attempt to do that. 
But you know that you, you cannot be lazy and work on a farm. You can't call in sick. You can't take a day off. When the work has to be done, it has to be done. When the cows need to be milked, they have to be milked. When it's time to harvest the crops, it has to be done, whether you feel like it or not, whether you're sick or healthy, no matter what the weather. You cannot call in sick. You have to do the work when it needs to be done. And Paul's saying it's this kind of hard work that should be the norm, the guide for all believers, especially for pastors, as they endure hardship for Christ and for the gospel. It is hard work to labor to follow after Christ in the midst of a fallen world. It is hard work to study and proclaim the truth of God's word in the midst of a fallen world. It is hard work to train and raise your children to follow after Christ in the midst of a fallen world. It's hard work to fight against sin. And yet this is what God calls us to do. Paul was an example of this. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And also at the end of Colossians chapter 1, when Paul writes to the people there and he says, his goal is to present everybody complete in Christ. That is his goal. And he says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. We're to work as hard as we can as we depend upon the grace of Christ and are strengthened by the grace of Christ. And as we do this, this image Paul gives us, it's not just creating an image of hard work, but also that there is a reward, there is a crop to share in that results from such labor. By God's grace, there is hope for those who work hard, but we must remember, always remember that it's by God's grace. In Corinthians, Paul uses this image of farming again. He says it's, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. In 1 Corinthians 15, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do not grow weary in doing good, for you know in due season you will reap if you do not give up. So Paul has given us these three illustrations from everyday life to encourage us to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus as we share in suffering, have the single-minded focus, wholehearted devotion of a soldier, have the discipline of an athlete, have the work ethic of a farmer. And then in the rest of this passage, he moves on and he gives us three reminders to encourage us in this task, in this calling. And the first one begins in verse 8. The most important one, he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Twelve times in this letter, Paul will use the phrase Christ Jesus in that order. This is the first time and the only time that he will reverse the order and put Jesus first. The human name given to our Savior. The Lord saves. And I think it's significant and I think he's trying to encourage Timothy as Timothy considers the fact that he will suffer for the gospel He's saying, Timothy, remember Jesus, that God became a man, and in his humanity, he suffered. He went through the worst suffering imaginable for you and for his people. And so he can identify with your suffering. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. 
Christ himself has suffered on our behalf. And because he has suffered the worst suffering imaginable, we do not have to suffer that suffering for our sins. Again, we look at Hebrews 12. We remember those words. We're we're encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As you are called to share in suffering, remember Jesus, that he also suffered in his body on the tree. And remember also that by his suffering, our redemption was accomplished. That he did die, but also he rose again and he is alive today and we serve a risen Savior. And he is descended from David. He is the rightful reigning King and Messiah. His suffering for our sins is finished. It is done. It is complete. And he no longer has to suffer anymore. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he will appear again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for them, to those who endure hardship. Remember Jesus Christ. Second thing that Paul tells Timothy to remember is found in the end of verse 8 through verse 9 where he says, remember the power of the gospel. Remember the power of the gospel, the power of the word of God. For Paul, his suffering was not hypothetical. It was a reality. Paul says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. The word that he uses there for criminal usually refers to murderers or traitors, which Paul was not. Paul's falsely accused. Emperor Nero was persecuting the Christians. Rome had been burned. He blamed it on the Christians. He threw their leader in jail. And Paul realizes that this imprisonment is going to end in his death. His torturous death. But is Paul discouraged? Has he lost hope? Does he want his suffering wrapped up in a neat box? Nice bow on top that can be set aside? No, Paul says, though I am chained... God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained, and it cannot be chained by false teachers. It cannot be chained by the edicts of evil men or governments. It cannot even be chained by human weakness, which is great encouragement to me. But it is the power of God to salvation. It has the power to save souls. It abides forever. It will not return void. And this is Paul's great hope. This is why he was able to share in suffering and endure suffering. Look, listen to what it says in verse 10. He says, God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is what Paul's life was all about. This is all that mattered to him, living and spreading the gospel. And this should be all that matters to us, your pastors. It should be all that matters to you. Paul could be chained like a criminal, about to suffer death. But as long as God's word continued to be spread and prospered, it didn't matter to him. His worth, his life was worth nothing to him apart from that. Because God's word is not bound. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. It leads to salvation. This was Paul's great hope. It's referring to the elect that have not yet come to know Christ. 
And Paul says the word of God is still going to go forth and people are going to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. They're going to experience that grace that is in Christ Jesus. And they will come to know him. And this is happening today all over the world. This is our great hope that people would respond to the gospel and come to salvation. It may happen here tonight, but if not, it may happen somewhere else. Perhaps it will happen down on Christian Street as Stanley Morton proclaims the gospel. Perhaps it will happen down in Mexico at the border where Gene and Luann Bowman are working and where we're headed this summer, or maybe in Kenya, or maybe in Peru where Chris Brown is, or in Japan where Matt Gillingham is. But wherever it happens, it will happen, whether it's here or somewhere else. It will happen next week and next month and next year, and it will continue to happen until Christ comes again. And this is our great hope, that God will bring his people to salvation. Now, I think we just had our largest new membership class ever join the church. But I would implore you to not be satisfied with that. May we plead with God that it would continue to happen here in our midst, in the midst of our families and our communities and at our jobs and our schools, that we would see the gospel go forth in power and that we would see the elect share in salvation with eternal glory that's in Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the power of the gospel. And also at the end, Paul closes with these words, remember the trustworthy saying. Now this is referring to what might have been an early hymn or a creed of the church, something that they were familiar with, similar to what we do Sunday mornings when we confess the Apostles' Creed. It's a truth that we're familiar with, that we remember, and Paul's reminding Timothy of this at the end. And in it, it has two words of encouragement, a word of warning, and then also maybe a little surprise at the end. But he says this. Here's a trustworthy saying, verse 11. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And I believe that's referring to what's explained in Romans chapter 6, our union with Christ and his death. If we've been united to Christ in his death, we will also be united to him in his resurrection. We will live with him in glory forever. Secondly, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul says the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed. Be strengthened by the grace of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering. And as you do, you will also reign with Christ for eternity. The next one is a word of warning. If we disown him, he will also disown us. This is referring to those who reject Jesus Christ. As it says in John chapter 3, if you do not believe in Christ, you are condemned already. God's wrath remains on you. And if that is your case, and it remains that case to the end of your life, then Christ will also disown you and will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. But then Paul ends this passage with grace again, where he says, If we are faithless, or although we are faithless, will he also be faithless towards us? If we are faithless, an example would be Peter as he denied Christ when Christ was arrested. We all know that even though we have been saved by the grace of Christ, there are still times every day when we turn from that grace and we sin against God. And we follow the evil desires of our heart and we are not faithful to our calling 
or to the gospel. When that happens, how does Christ respond to us? He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This is the grace of God. It's not deserved, can't be earned, can't be paid back, and will never be lost. He remains faithful to himself. In the early 2nd century, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, was arrested for his faith. And he found out that he was going to be thrown to the lions. And as he was awaiting this suffering death that he was about to experience, he wrote a letter to the church at Rome. And in that letter, he wrote these words. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. Bring that suffering. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. Let me, let others get to Jesus Christ. And beloved, we will. We will. And they will too. Amen. And amen. Let us pray.